So three weeks ago, for those who were here, uh, we began an introduction to what I've called the philosophy of ministry. And then we had the week of ice, and then we had a week of COVID. Uh, so we're just now revisiting that purpose statement. And in this series, I'm calling it Nuts and Bolts, simply because nuts and bolts are what hold the world together, essentially. It's what binds everything together. And I think that as we consider a ministry purpose according to Scripture, you'll find that it, like nuts and bolts, really does hold the ministry of the church together. This is why we do what we do, and it is why these things make sense. It's why we put our money where we put our money. It's why we put our time and our energy where we put our time and our energy. And that purpose that I've introduced you may remember it's a threefold purpose. And it is to reach, to nurture, and to equip. Those are the three purposes unified in one. To reach, nurture, and equip God's people for God's worship and service in God's world. So the last time we were here together on this subject, we considered what it is to reach, what it is to do evangelism, what it is to be a church that is always trying to reach and invite and welcome in people to hear the good news about what Jesus Christ has done. What it means to be a Christian, what it means to, be a, to live the Christian life. And the second part of that threefold purpose is where we'll turn our attention this morning. And that is the subject of nurture. That we want to be a nurturing ministry. And by that, I mean that our subject largely is what we call our covenant children and that they are a priority in the church. That our covenant children, the children of the church, they are a priority to the Lord and they are to be a priority to every one of us, even as we've witnessed this morning. The world... Our society and our culture has a very different view of children than does the church. Often views in our world and our society of children are simply that what? Children are a nuisance. Children are noisy. Children are disruptive. Children are inconvenient burdens and bothers. That's the way the world typically thinks of its own children, or even worse than that, of its own children, the world says they can be a mistake. The world says of its own children that they can be a mistake that need to be done away with. In 2016, there were 18 abortions for every 100 pregnancies in the United States. 18 out of every 100 pregnancies was viewed as a mistake and was ended. Since 1973, there have been 63,459,781 projected total abortions. That's a statement about children and their importance or their unimportance to the world. But let it be heard loudly and clearly this morning. God's people, the church, have a very different view of our children 
because God's word defines them so very, very differently than the world does. The Bible teaches us that children are a profound blessing, regardless of any circumstances that surround them. Psalm 127, verses 3 through 5. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb, a reward from Him. And like arrows in the hands of a warrior are children born in one's youth. Blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. You see, that's a very different view that the church has, that the Bible has, that God has given His people to view our children. I want you to feel that tension this morning between how the world views children and how we view our children. In our primary text this morning, our Deuteronomy chapter 6 and Matthew 19 should be two very familiar passages, but hear them, listen to them, and what they say about the beauty of the Lord's children that He's given His people. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, meaning there is no one like the Lord. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. And then in the New Testament, Matthew chapter 19, verses 13 and 14. Then people brought little children to Jesus for him to place his hands on them and to pray for them. But the disciples rebuked them. Jesus said, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. And when he had placed his hands on them, he went on from there. Let's pray that the Lord would help us understand and apply his word. Our Lord and our God, would you open our eyes to see our children as you do. That they are our greatest priority, our greatest privilege, our greatest purpose as we seek to honor you. We pray it together in Jesus' name. Amen. Mark Twain had a quote on children. What was Mark Twain's view of children? Have you heard this quote? He said this, parents. When a boy turns 13, seal him in a barrel and feed him through a knot hole. And when he turns 16, plug up the hole. That's a comical view of our children, and uh, teenagers don't take that too seriously. If you want to take a quote seriously, I'll contrast it with G.K. Chesterton. This quote is attributed to him. He says, the most extraordinary thing in the world is an ordinary man and an ordinary woman 
and their ordinary children. Amen? Those are the means that God works in extraordinary means in the earth. It's through an ordinary mom, an ordinary dad, an ordinary child, and God's grace running deeply into their lives. Amen? That's again that tension, and that's a comical one and a playful one, but how do you view your children? And how do you view each other's children? Are they nuisances? Are they burdens? Are they bothersome? Are they in the way? Or are they children of the Lord that every one of us has a calling to influence, to impress upon in good and redemptive and godly ways? That is the subject of covenant nurture this morning. And that's, that's the topic, covenant nurture. That may be unfamiliar language to you. I'm going to assume that it is. And I want to, as quickly as possible, flesh through this concept of nurture, of covenant Nurture And that language of covenant, I know it's come up throughout the service. It's because we really believe the Bible is about covenant. It's about God's promises to his people. God's promises to his believing people and their children. And so I think you'll see that in the evidence of it this morning. So first, what do we mean by covenant nurture? Well, by covenant nurture, we understand and believe what the Bible says about covenant children. Covenant children are the children of believers. Christian parents have covenant children. And a single Christian parent, even if the, if, if the spouse is not there or is an unbelieving spouse, the scriptures say in 1 Corinthians 7 that those children are holy to the Lord. They belong to the Lord. They are not pagan children. They are children of promise. And that's the second thing that we mean by covenant nurture. They are children of believers and they are children of promise. You heard already in Acts chapter 2 verse 39 that the promise, Peter says, is for you and your children and for those far off who have yet to come, those even yet to be born, that, the God, that God's promise runs deeply and truly. And God's promises have always run through families. It began that way in Genesis chapter 12 and chapter 15 and chapter 17. God's covenant with Abraham, where he says in promise that your descendants will be more than the sand on the seashore, more than the skies, the stars in the sky. God's always had a vision for children, for offspring, for what he calls seed. And he's always had the intention of blessing the earth through the children of believers. That's what we mean by covenant children. By covenant nurture, we also mean that those covenant children are reared in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Ephesians chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may go well with you and that you may enjoy long life on the earth. And then it says this, verse 4. Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction, the NIV says, or you may have heard it in another version as the nurture 
and admonition of the Lord. God's people have been commanded to bring our children up, nurturing their faith, admonishing them with God's word, that they would have known and heard God's word all the days of their life. That they could never remember a day that God's word and God's worship weren't central to the family that they grew up in. That's what we mean by covenant nurture. Now this morning we saw visibly, pictorially, a picture of the gospel. That sign and seal of baptism that God has given his church. He's given it to believers and their children, the scriptures say. Now think of the opportunity for nurture for those of you who are parents. As you go home from church today, as you have lunch today, oh, what a joy it would be if maybe your children said, why'd they put water on that boy's head? What was that about? And then you explain to them, that's what we believe, that God washes sinners. He identifies with them and marks them and says, Persist in the faith and all of my promises are true for you. What an opportunity to teach your own children through the visible picture displayed through the sacrament of baptism. Baptism, whether an adult or whether a child, it is communicating that same image, that same gospel promise. And God knows that we need to be reminded. He knows that our hearts grow cold and indifferent. But when we witness a baptism, we're reminded how freely God offers forgiveness, the washing of sin for those who persist in the faith. Our theological standards as a congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America, they really highlight this importance and this truth. Some of our uh, candidates for officers of ministry have been going through the confession Perhaps this stood out to them, or it'll stand out to you as it did to me. Westminster Confession of Faith, eight, Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter twenty-eight, section five says this. Did you know this? It is a great sin to contemn baptism. It is a great sin to neglect baptism, to deprive from God's people the marking and all the truth that it associates, to deprive that from a believer or their children, we believe is a sin. It's wrong. Shouldn't be done. And so if you're hearing that, you should hear the weight of that. If you're a professing Christian and you've not been baptized, do not neglect what is rightfully yours. And don't withhold your children from that promise either. It is their birthright to be associated with the church of God. They are not pagan children. They are covenant children. And God says they belong and they are to have a mark of membership. That they know that they belong. They are not outsiders of the covenant. The promise is to believers and their children. Now I realize that probably just raised a lot of hairs and a lot of questions. I would love to have a cup of coffee with you and talk through that because that probably sounds very foreign to some of you because we live in a very revivalistic and individualistic culture and society and church. But we do believe that's what the scriptures teach and we do believe it is a beautiful promise of God. Now what we are not saying 
is we are not presuming the salvation of anyone who is baptized. There is no promise of regeneration through baptism. It is the application of promises, but whether an adult or a child, the condition on the baptized is what? That they continue in the faith, that they persist in the faith and live a life of faith and repentance. That's true of every baptized person, and it always has been. Whether those marked in the covenant community in the Old Testament or those marked in the New Testament, we are baptized into that condition of needing to persist in faith and repentance. But if you'd like to talk about that, discuss that, I would love to talk about that with you during the week. Number two, secondly, well, what does covenant nurture look like? Okay, I hear the concept biblically. Sounds like it did happen, Old Testament and New. Sounds like we are called to do it. But, but practically, what does it look like? I have three, no, I have four things. Number one, it really means to prioritize your children. It, needs, it means to prioritize their nurture in the Lord. And let me highlight something to show the emphasis of this. So I read from Matthew chapter 19 where the disciples, the disciples of Jesus were seeing children as a nuisance, right? And they brought the children, people were bringing the children to Jesus and they were like, no, no, get them out of here. This isn't for them. We're, we're busy adults with the rabbi, right? And Matthew 19 says that Jesus said, no, 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 let the children come. But do you know how Mark recalls that event? Mark recalls a detail that Matthew doesn't tell. In Mark chapter 10, it says this, Jesus was indignant with his disciples. He was angry. He was angry that they saw children as not important enough to be in the presence of Jesus. And here's one of those episodes where Jesus shows angers with his own disciples. And so we've got to have a high priority of our children. Church is not just for the adults. Churches for the whole church family. It's good to hear the, what's been called the sounds of the covenant. You know what the sounds of the covenant are? It's children. It's voices. It's footsteps. It's dropped sippy cups in a gym where it can sound loud and parents can be embarrassed. That's the sound of the covenant at work. God loves the sound of children in his worship. I truly believe it. And it's easy for us in our culture, in our day, to think, well, this is for adults. We don't want children distracting. We want children present all the days of their life, hearing God's word, hearing the truths of God's word, being reminded of his love and his mercy. That's what it is to prioritize our children and the covenant nurture of them. Secondly, we nurture our children at home. Location number one for covenant nurture is at home. Mom and dad, the ideal God-ordained context for nurturing our children. Now, not every family has a mom and a dad or a believing mom and dad, but the scriptures make it clear in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, one Christian parent makes those children covenant children. They are holy to the Lord, the apostle Paul says. And so... 
covenant nurture begins at home. In, De- in Deuteronomy chapter 6, we're given an image of how ordinary covenant nurture happens. And I want you to hear this. I want you to be reminded of this. It says, impress on your children. Teach them God's word. Talk about Yahweh to your children when? Well, Deuteronomy says all the time. When you lie down and when you get up, when you're walking, when you're sitting, everything in between. You're always talking about the Lord in your family and with your children, and not in a weird way, in a genuine, sincere way. You see a sunrise or you see a sunset, and you're so used to seeing it, you don't think about it. But your children are seeing it for the first time. And God's creation gives an opportunity to say, look at that. God created that by the word of his power. He did it in the space of six days and he called it all good, we're told in Genesis. Those are the impressions, those are the markings that your children will grow up. They'll know what mom and dad believe because they've heard it all the days of their life. Or maybe when you sit down to a meal and enjoy a meal... Maybe you always pause to give thanks to God for his provision. And that's covenant nurture. That's marking for your children how to live faithfully in the world. I could go on. You could give your own examples of what it means to talk about the Lord in your lying down, in your rising up, in your walking, and in your sitting. You are given opportunities through God's creation in his world to point to and highlight all the evidences of God's goodness and God's mercy. Covenant nurture begins at home with mom and dad, priority number one. Number two, though, covenant nurture happens in church. Covenant nurture happens at GPC, and we have to be intentional about it. But the whole church family plays a part in impressing truth upon children. We can do it through Sunday school. We can do it through VBS. We can do it in the nursery. You can do it as volunteers in the nursery or in Sunday school. And it's not just the elders and the deacons. It's you as church members. Some of you volunteering at youth group to come and to help with games and recreation or food or maybe coming and sharing your own testimony. These are all aspects of covenant nurture. We're all in this together in that sense, trying to be faithful to those vows that we make at baptism. Meaning, I don't just care about my children, and you don't just care about your children. We see them as the children at GPC, and all of us as church members have a responsibility to make a faithful marking influence. Amen? So in my own life this week, I'm sad that I had never really reflected on this, Uh, but I grew up in a small little congregation in the country, in White Oak, South Carolina. Probably 40 people in a country church on Sundays, and pretty much all kin to each other in this little community where we lived. And I was reflecting on this covenant nurture truth this week, and remembered that it was my cousin Lib who was in her late 70s, maybe her early 80s, and she was my Sunday school teacher. She taught my brother and me Sunday school. And she would always just have a little piece of candy for us. Uh, She'd bring a little treat for us. Sometimes it was a homemade little treat. But I have memories of her 
having us memorize the children's catechism, which is one way to do covenant nurture. It's not the only way. But I memorized the, co- the, the children's catechism because Cousin Lib in her 80s was my Sunday school teacher and my brother's. Now, my brother and I are both in pastoral ministry, and we both would identify, you know what? Cousin Lib, in all of her sweetness, she was an old widow is what she was. And God used her to have a marking influence on my life. A second great influence on my life during my high school years, I went to a youth group in the next town at a different church, and we had a young widow. Her husband had died in the Vietnam War, and she was our youth group leader. And she would teach Sunday school le- or youth group lessons. And you know what? They really weren't that good. But week after week after week, I was shaped, my heart was shaped by this young widow who was giving her time and effort to shape the youth at the church. An old widow, a young widow. And then the third memory I had from my youth was that our little congregation, as small as it was, as insignificant seeming as it was, they set aside money to send the children of the church, which was me and my siblings, to send us to a place called Bon Clarken, a youth camp, so that we could hear the gospel. And I think they provided a 50% scholarship to help families. That's covenant nurture. And I'm not sure the practice here. I think we've done similar things here to help send our youth to Ridgehaven and to camps and to places where our youth can hear the gospel from another preacher, from other people other than parents. You get a third source to hear scriptural truth. That's covenant nurture. It's the church taking our children and our youth very seriously, and it's a beautiful thing. Now, fourthly, There's another way that covenant nurture happens. And this is one I'd really like to encourage in the lives of all of you. So we have it in our homes. We have it in our church family. But we also have it in community with our Christian friends who don't come to church. Not here. They might belong elsewhere. By community, I mean Christian families and Christian friends that you can interact with and intentionally have a role of covenant nurture with them. So let me give you a concrete example, a beautiful example of this. So one of my best friends, who uh, when he was in college, there were 15 guys that had a Bible study together. Okay, 20-year-old guys who had committed themselves during college to have a Bible study. When they all graduated from college... This is from Shippensburg University in Pennsylvania. They said, let's keep meeting once a year. Once a year, let's get together and do the things we love. We'll spend a week together, or almost a week. We're going to camp together, and we're going to play softball together. And so these young single men would continue to get together, and while together camping They would pray for one another, hear updates on their lives, have Bible study together, nurturing each other in their faith. That's a good thing, isn't it? It's beautiful. Well, one by one, those 15 men started getting married. And they said, you know what? We still want to do this. We want to do this for the rest of our lives. 
And so then you got to get the wives to buy in, to let the husband go, to fly across the country, to have a week of camping and softball. And they continued to do it. And it was a great thing, encouraging their faith. Fast forward several years. Now those men have children. One of those men's name was Macy. And Macy had a 13-year-old son named Nathan. And the dynamics of that whole men's ministry and encouraging each other in their faith, it suddenly changed when Nathan came to that annual camping trip and revealed to all of his closest college friends that were like brothers that he had been diagnosed with ALS, Lou Gehrig's disease. And his days were numbered. Macy would die. My good friend would do his funeral in front of hundreds of people and pronounce the gospel and the beauty of it to all. But Macy had that 13-year-old son. And the most beautiful example of covenant nurture I can give you is that now those 14 men continue to meet annually to play softball and to camp out. Macy's not there anymore. But Macy's son, Nathan, has been coming in his father's place for the last five or six years. And those 14 men have said, he lost his father, but we're going to help nurture his faith. And so now Nathan is in college, and when he was in high school, those 14, those who lived nearby, they would go watch him play baseball. They would go watch him at his basketball games. They would be as a father in absentia in his life. And now he goes on those camping trips and he shares his faith, his prayer requests. And what I'm highlighting is that those 14 men saw it as a chance to nurture a young man who needed older men in his life. That's covenant nurture. And that's the kind of thing that if we have eyes to look for it, there are opportunities within our reach to love other people well. Covenant nurture demands that we have those kinds of families, those kinds of friendships, that kind of priority for one another and for our children because we view them so differently than the world does. Now lastly, well, what's the hopeful fruit of covenant nurture? Where does all this conclude? What, it is, you, what is it you're saying that we're looking for this to become? Three things. Number one, hopefully, prayerfully, it would mean lifelong faith and repentance in the lives of our children. That they would never remember a day of rebellion, of running away from the Lord and His Word and His people. And for some that is true. For some that is their testimony and it's beautiful and we're thankful for it. But that's not always the case. Because there are wandering years. There are years that our covenant children will wander from the faith through a season of disobedience, experimenting, looking elsewhere for hope and joy. And so our prayer then would be, Lord, may it just be a short season. May it not be a long and protracted season of unfaithfulness. Lord, would you keep it short? And wherever that child is now living, would you put people, faithful people in their lives to help steer them back to Christ and to the church? And then thirdly, 
hopefully what we're really saying about covenant nurture is that we can spare our children a life of guilt, shame, regret. That we could spare them a life of pain and misery and sorrow. That's the hopeful fruit of covenant nurture. That our children would not rebel and find themselves in misery. But if they do, or if they're in a season of waywardness, you know, the Lord's given us the story of the prodigal son in Luke chapter 15 for a reason. People do walk away, but by God's grace, they can come back to their senses. And so if we take covenant nurture seriously, we always know that the responsibility is on the one baptized to persist in the faith. We don't presume anything, but we trust the Lord's promises to work in the life of the baptized, whether an adult or a child. But at the end of the day, it's really like a farmer. And I'll close with this. It's like a farmer who sows seed and prays for the harvest. Hopes for rain. Hopes that there will be an increase and a fruitfulness. But all the farmer can do is practice his principles of sowing faithfully and doing the good work of a farmer, but knowing only God gives the increase. And so it is for Christian parents to practice our principles, to trust the Lord, to be faithful parents. We're not going to be perfect parents. We're going to model unhelpful things to our children. But at the end of the day, that's our hopeful prayer is, Lord, see your promises through to these children. Keep them from pain and misery and sorrow and sadness in this life. Draw them to Jesus and hold them fast. That's what it is. That's the goal of covenant nurture. And then I'll close with this last word. The gospel irony in all this, I want you to hear this. God's son, Jesus, was covenantally cursed. He took on the curses of the covenant himself, willingly, so that our children could be covenantally blessed. That's the irony of the gospel. And that's the hope of covenant nurture, is that God did not spare his own son from taking the consequences of our sin. And now he tells us to pray for our children, to nurture our children, to teach and admonish our children. Let's pray that we would be a church where this is taken seriously, that we're not presumptive about our children's faith, but that we really do labor and pray for it. Let's pray together. Lord, that is our prayer for one another this morning. For our children, whether they're young or old, that they might be nurtured in their faith and that we might parent with confidence in the gospel and not presumption in our own religion. So Lord, would you impress this upon all of us this morning, that we would be more deliberate, more intentional in talking about you and your truth to our children in our homes, and that as a church we would do it more faithfully here in all of our ministry practice, and that Lord, we would see many, many who would have a testimony that says they never remember a day of not knowing the mercy of God in Christ, 
because they grew up with the benefit of it all around them, especially in their own families. We ask this, we pray it together in Jesus' name. Amen.